All right, Mark chapter 14, verses 27 through 31, and then we're going to go drop on all the way down to the end of the chapter and look at verses 66 through 72. So Mark 14, 27 through 31, and then 66 through 72. In his great work, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis pens these words. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. I've heard people admit that they are bad-tempered or that they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I've ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I've very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And the more we have it ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. In our text today, we're going to see these two opposite virtues, pride and humility, on display in the lives of an unfaithful disciple and the completely faithful Savior. We're going to sketch out these two portraits of Jesus and of Peter together today, and I hope to show you that despite Peter's imperfections, despite his shortcomings, Jesus still loves him steadfastly. Our main idea flows from that vein and is this. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. And I'm going to exhort you this morning. It might sound odd at first until I qualify. I'm going to exhort you this morning to never grow up. To never grow up. Let me say what I mean here. I want to encourage you to never outgrow your need for Jesus, your need for the grace of God, your need to continually, humbly, and habitually repent and confess your sin. For if you think you have no need of repentance and confession, if you think you've no need to run to Jesus, then you've yet to know him at all. Six parts this morning. Yes, count them six. I know you've been quite accustomed to three, but we're going to double that up. Six today, and here is how they're going to go. A prophecy, a promise, some posturing, a prediction, some protesting, and Peter's denial. Notice all the P's. I worked really hard on that. Couldn't really find a good one for uh, the sixth point. That's Peter's denial. Prophecy, a promise, some posturing, a prediction, some protesting, and Peter's denial. Let's pray together, and then we will get into it. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we can come into your word and, and just submit to it and listen to what you have to say to us there. 
God, we pray that you wouldn't let us leave here the same, that we would be becoming in practice what you've declared us to be in truth, which is holy. And we pray that by submitting ourselves to the preaching of your word now, as we listen, that you would be shaping our hearts after your image. Father, do make us holy as you are holy. Oh, Holy Spirit, fill us with yourself that we might produce your fruit. Amen. A little bit of context, in case you don't remember, it's, it's Passover week in Jerusalem, and Jesus, Jesus has caused quite a bit of a stir, right? He's cursed the temple after he rode in on the back of a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, right? Then he went and taught in the temple that he had cursed, and he taught authoritatively. This angered some folks, made the religious establishment quite upset to the point that they had decided to deal with this upstart uh, rabbi from Galilee by killing him. They were going to wait until after the Passover to do this, of course, because they were afraid of the crowds, but then they were presented with an opportunity they couldn't refuse when Judas came to them and said, hey, I will sell Jesus out to you. What will you give me for that? And they hit him up with 30 pieces of silver. And so this is kind of the, the context in which we find ourselves. It's hours before Jesus' death, and we're listening to a conversation between him and his disciples just after the Last Supper, the first supper if you were here last week, the communion meal where he revealed himself to be the true Passover lamb of God who takes the place of sinful man, substitutes himself for sinful man so that they might live. He proved himself to be the true substitutionary sacrifice. And so he taught that he indeed was the lamb of God. So after revealing this and after speaking of Judas's betrayal, he now comes to the disciples. They've, they've sung the hymn. They've come. It's actually not sure when exactly this takes place, but Mark sets it right after the supper. I'm not sure if it's during or after, but this is what Jesus says, and it is just as out of place, whether it's before or after. We don't really know, but this is what Jesus says in verse 27. You will all fall away. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Not only will one friend betray Jesus, but all will desert him. Why does Jesus tell them this? I think it's because Jesus believes God's word. He knows what's going to happen and he wants to prepare his disciples for what is coming. It's one of the, the many times that Jesus refers to Scripture's authority. And so if you're curious as to why Christians believe the Bible is God's word, we, we do because Jesus does. And here he quotes Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, which is a little bit enigmatic. Rabbis had never quite figured it out. But this is what it says. It says this, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes this to identify himself as the shepherd that is struck and the disciples as the sheep that will be scattered. But notice what was really interesting in this quotation is that the eye doing the striking of the good shepherd is none other than God the Father. It's a little bit uh, mind-blowing if you think about it. 
I think, I think the verses like Zechariah and, and Jesus quoting it here, they, they help us to see uh, John 3.16 fit together with, with John 10.18, right? John 3.16, you're familiar with, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It helps us to see the Father's giving of the Son, but also the Son's giving of Himself, the Son willingly submitting Himself to the will of the Father. We see the Son giving Himself over, saying, yes, I will take the wrath that man deserves on man's behalf. And He does this as His own choice, right? We, John ten eighteen says, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I mean, you've just got to love the Trinitarian flavor of Jesus' quotation of Zechariah. He was there with the Father in eternity past when they came up with the plan of salvation before creation. They knew man would be sinful and fall, and this is the plan coming to fruition. It's about to come to fruition on the cross I mean, our God is just hes so great and complex and wonderful. Jesus here, by quoting Zechariah, is predicting the defection of the disciples. And he's applying the prophecy to himself in order to prepare his disciples for what's going to happen by assuring them that it is indeed God's plan, that he is in charge. Jesus is announcing that he, the Son of Man, is going as it is written of him. He's declaring that the reality of Isaiah 53 is just beyond the horizon atop Calvary's hill. Remember Isaiah 53? But he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed all we like sheep have gone astray we've turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all he was oppressed he was afflicted yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before shears is silent so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living stricken for the transgression of my people and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He's put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities Jesus is alerting the disciples to the cosmic truth before them. God's plan of redemption has been in motion and it's coming to its zenith the Messiah is about to suffer for sin alone, abandoned. 
Jesus doesn't stop with the prophecy, though. He doesn't stop by telling them what's about to happen so that they're not surprised by it. But he continues to making a promise. He tells them, you are all going to fall away. Be prepared. You're, you're going to leave me. You're going to abandon me. But take heart. Verse 28, after I am raised, but after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. My death isn't the end, is what Jesus is saying. You'll all leave me, but I will never forsake you. Jesus is telling his friends once more that the path to the cross is by divine design. He is saying, you will abandon me because you choose to and because it is written. But even though you leave me, I am never going to leave you. In the midst of the bitterness of betrayal, Jesus holds out this sweet promise to his friends. I will falter, I will die, I will rise, and I will meet you in Galilee, where it all started. Despite the failures of his friends, Jesus will continue to pursue them in relationship. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. I think here, knowing that the disciples will indeed defect and deny him, and they, they're kind of, uh, people look at the disciples sometimes as superstars, but as we've seen through Mark, they're anything but. They falter continually. They, they get it, but they don't get it. They're always growing, right? There's always more. There's always, they're always in process. And I think this idea that Jesus loves them when uh, he calls them initially, when they identify him as the Messiah in chapter 8, when they deny him and when he restores them, he loves them the same. Loves them the same. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. And, and this bumps up against the idea of, of sanctification. And uh, if you remember, we've talked about it before, Martin Luther's uh, patented phrase, simul justice et peccator, right? That short phrase we said was a fancy way uh, to say that we are at the same time both righteous and sinners. In the past, we've de defined sanctification and another uh, 50 cent word as becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. And so what, what we're, we've said is that by faith in Christ, Christians have been declared holy, that God looks at you when you are following him and says legally, forensically, you are righteous. But even though you're justified by Christ positionally as a Christian, just as the disciples were by faith, justified uh, by faith in Christ positionally, we're not yet there practically, just like the disciples. Not yet there practically. Peter is justified by his faith in Christ back in Mark 8 when Jesus has to rebuke him and says, get behind me, Satan, right? He loves him the same when he's rebuking him as when Peter's walking faithfully. God's love is thick and unchanging and overwhelming, and it's for unworthy people. It's for unlovely people that are willing to admit their need of him. Does that make sense that positionally in Christ we are just right now? But practically right now, we're still sinners. Christians are declared holy by God, but until the kingdom comes in its fullness, we still sin sometimes. We're all 
imperfect disciples growing by the power of the Holy Spirit to be more like Jesus continually. We're free from the the penalty of sin, from the power of sin, but we're not yet free from the presence of sin. And so this faltering, it's going to continue to, to mark us because we don't reach perfection until Christ's returns. We're never in, in this lifetime now going to outgrow our need to keep confessing and repenting of our sin. So Jesus loves you as you are. He loved Peter as, as he was when he called him. Loves you as you are right now. Loves you as you were when he called you. But he loves you too much to let you stay there. Jesus loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay as you are. He knows you will fail. That he loves you in and through your failures. In fact, Jesus uses the failures of the disciples in their trials to sanctify them, to make them more holy, to make them more like himself. You'll notice that any time the disciples sin or suffer, that they always end up more like Jesus. I mean, Jesus is going to use their desertion of him and their denying of him to increase their appreciation and their faith in him. When they're all restored during that breakfast in Galilee, they have a better sense of Christ's love and their need for his forgiveness than than they ever did before his death. I think sin and suffering, they go hand in glove. They're suffering because of sin. But God, by his manifold wisdom and his awesome power, bends sin and suffering to serve his purposes. God uses the denial of the disciples to increase their faith. Likewise, God leverages your circumstances and sins to increase your faith, to grow you up into maturity in Christ and to bring glory to himself. Jesus here is pointing to Zechariah's prophecy in order to alert his friends to their coming defection, and he promises to meet them upon his resurrection, giving them hope. But but Peter, intoxicated with pride, can't wait to contradict Jesus, can't wait to get verse 29 out of his mouth. And as soon as Jesus finishes making this pronouncement and this promise, he blurts out, Even though they all fall away, verse 29, Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Peter says, look, I can see this lot screwing up. I get it. The chumps. But me? Nah, man. I think one of the primary symptoms of pride is thinking the best of yourself and the worst of others. Can you think of someone that you have mistreated, looked down on, misjudged because you assumed the worst of them rather than giving them the benefit of the doubt? Maybe there's a a brother or sister in Christ that you need to apologize to today. Peter believes that the others will fall away but refuses to believe that he will fall away. I think perhaps it's because he thinks he's the greatest of the disciples. We've kind of cataloged this discussion. Uh, It's kind of ongoing between the disciples. We saw it come up in Mark, and Luke lets us know that they've rehashed this conversation recently. 
And so I think that Peter perhaps has decided, look, I, I am winning that conversation. I'm winning that competition. I'm the greatest of you. And it's, it makes sense to me that you all would fall away, but not me. I'm the greatest. It really is amazing how quickly Peter has moved from humble self-examination when Jesus says, one of you will betray me. Peter says, surely not I, Lord. I'm not the one that will betray you, Jesus. Am I? He moves away from humble self-examination and into proud, proud self-assurance. He moves away from surely not I, Lord, to certainly not I, Lord. I will not fall away. I think we're guilty of this same movement ourselves, aren't we? Humble and dependent on Jesus one second and pompous and dependent on ourselves the next. How quickly, how easily our sinful hearts slip away from self-examination to self-assurance and away from Christ. Peter here is self-assured. He believes in himself instead of Jesus. I mean, his arrogance is on dazzling display as he presumes to correct the Messiah. Again, we've talked about how in chapter 8 he tried to uh, rebuke Jesus just after confessing him as Messiah. And here again, Peter is saying, no, Jesus, you've got it wrong. These guys, maybe you're right about them, but you are not right about me. I will not fall away. Will not falter. Peter has a nasty habit of correcting Jesus. Do you? Do you try to edit God's word? so that it better fits your own desires or goes along more easily with contemporary cultural tides. Do you believe yourself instead of God? If your God can never contradict you, then you're not worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping yourself. Peter's following Jesus, yes, but he is not perfect. He's in process. And so while sin's curse has lost its grip on him, its presence remains. And Peter sinfully puts his belief in himself. I mean, we talked about last time Peter corrected Jesus. Jesus came back at him with a fiery, get behind me, Satan, you have on your mind, not the things of God, but the things of men. I think the same rebuke would have suited this particular moment as well. However, Jesus seems to speak less sharply here. He knows that Peter will deny him instead of himself. And so Christ's words, I believe, were soaked with sorrow as he predicts with a lump in his throat, Peter's three denials. Verse 30, and Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, 
this very, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me. Couldn't have been easy words to say. I imagine the knowledge of Peter's denial almost haunted Jesus throughout their friendship. You know, Peter never, never forgot these words. No, it doesn't seem like it based on his response that we'll see in just a second. But you, you must remember that Mark is Peter's scribe. He's writing down Peter's eyewitness account. And we see these odd secondary tertiary details over and over again throughout the book. And it's just evidence that, that, that Peter is telling Mark what happened and things that seem secondary. And one of which is that uh, it, this is the only gospel, Mark's, where the rooster crows twice instead of once. I think it's because of Peter's vivid memory of this occasion. I mean, the crowing, it's not really important to the story, right? The story's centered on Peter's denial. How neat it is to see how God used different individuals, inspired them with his Holy Spirit, write down his word. I mean, how neat it is to see the genuineness of Scripture. There's a little sidebar, but, but if the Bible were fabricated, it would make no sense to include this story, right? I mean, if you're trying to, to start up a false religion, you don't feature a story in your authoritative documents of one of the movement's primary leaders failing so spectacularly. And Peter does fail spectacularly, not just here, but elsewhere. Friends, the Bible, it's, it's true. It's true in all that it teaches and affirms. It's the very word of God. Read it. Learn it. Submit to it. Delight in it. Jesus makes this prediction, and Peter, now joined by the rest of the gang, sticks to his guns in protest. But he said emphatically, that's Peter, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. You've got to appreciate Peter's pluck. He has the right desire. The desire to, to not fall away, is very, it's good. It's the right desire. But it's wrong for Peter to trust his heart more than Jesus' words. It's wrong for him to believe in himself instead of God. Pride keeps us from believing God and keeps us believing in ourselves. Pride keeps us from believing God and keeps us believing in ourselves. How has pride kept you from believing God? How has it kept you from obeying him? In what areas of your life are you failing to believe and obey God's word because you think you know better or because you're more comfortable doing something else? For me, for a long time, my pride kept me from believing God about the church. I mean, I thought of my salvation completely in individual terms. So I had Jesus and, and I didn't need anyone else. That was this unchristian and foolish thinking. 
but, but it is true. I, I remember staying home from church because I thought I could study more efficiently on my own. The other people in church would just, they'd just slow me down. I can remember skipping out on Sunday school classes and Bible studies because meeting new people or just talking to, to the same people sometimes made me uncomfortable or, or bored. My pride, the point is my pride kept me from enjoying the blessing of obedience to God's word, which was the blessing of the church. In my folly, I, I was missing out on a large part of what it means to know Christ. That is, to know his people. I'll never forget uh, the light coming on while I was at North Wake and realizing the Christian life isn't just about my personal relationship with Jesus, but also about my relationship with his people. I mean, understanding that I couldn't live the Christian life if, if I wasn't a part of the bride of Christ by way of a commitment to a local church, it was, it was revolutionary. Learning that Jesus saved me out of the world into the church and onto mission, it really rocked my world. As God needed this into me, I became more committed to growing into maturity through Sunday school and Bible study and most importantly, regular church attendance. I never realized how hard and how important it is to obey the seemingly easy command to gather together regularly. It's amazing that just by showing up, just by being present, how I was encouraged by other believers and was able to encourage other believers. I was and continue to be blessed by obedience to God's word in these matters. That's why I'm so passionate about trying to encourage you to be more committed to one another. I'm passionate about you, you all uh, visiting one another. And me too, myself included, I'm passionate about us visiting one another and seeing one another during the week and serving one another and doing life together. That's what we're called to do. That's why I'm passionate about this time together now. It's, it's special. It's important. I mean, it is a marvelous thing to see the life of God in the soul of the church as we are obedient to his call to live as his body. I think what I learned through that experience and through, through many others is that it's never too late to change. I mean, God loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to let you stay as you are. How has pride kept you from believing God and being obedient to his word? Peter and the others put their confidence in themselves instead of in Christ. And so their desertion has already begun before they've even taken a physical step away from Jesus. They are blinded by their pride at this point. And if you're like me, immediately verses like Proverbs 16, 18 come to your mind. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Or 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
One speaker even brought James 4, uh, 13 through 16 to my attention. Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Peter, the other disciples, and us disciples, we need to be careful about being arrogant about all things, but even about the future. The, uh, the speaker pointed out just how simple a reminder it is of our total dependence on God and of our weakness to, to use language when somebody asks us what we're planning on doing, to, to use language some, along the lines of what we see here, like Lord willing, or I hope so. What, what an easy way to remind ourselves that God is in control, that we are captive to this present moment, but Christ is not. That not only does he know the future, but he's written it. Jesus knew the future when he sent the disciples after the donkey on his way to Jerusalem. He knew it when he sent his disciples to present the Passover for him. He knew it when he sent his disciples to prepare the Passover for him. And he knows it now as he sends himself to die for the sins of the world. Jesus is in charge and we can trust what he tells us about the future. And despite the protests of the disciples, Jesus' words would be fulfilled and in short order. Drop down to verse 44. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those stood by, drew his sword, and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ears, his ear, singular. And Jesus said to them, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. Here it is, verse 50. And they, that's the disciples, and they all left him and fled. Jesus is seized with swords and clubs, and the disciples are seized by fear. They all left him. Peter, though, he does end up following at a distance. And eventually he finds himself in the high priest's courtyard just below where Jesus is being interrogated, rubbing shoulders with the Lord's captors as he warms himself by the fire. Verse 66, And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. This servant girl has recognized Peter and put him at risk, not knowing what's going to happen to him if he is exposed. Peter responds in verse 68, but he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. 
The first crow, I imagine, was only remembered in, in hindsight and seemed almost dull at the time. Like something going on in the background. Then this girl comes to Peter once more like a guilty conscience and continues to press on him. Verse 69, And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you were one of them, for you are a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse upon himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. This was all Peter could take. He puts himself under a divine curse. I mean, if I'm lying, let God strike me dead where I stand. That's what Peter says. It's a modern idiom that, that captures the sentiment here. I don't know this man that you're talking about. Peter, Peter won't even mention Jesus' name. He's distancing himself even further from this now convicted capital criminal. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter was supposed to deny himself, not Jesus. He weeps. Luke's account informs us that while the final denial was still on Peter's lips, Jesus turned and looked at him as the rooster crowed. It's as if the gaze of the Savior finally awakens Peter from the sleep that he had been indulging since the garden. The crowing sobers Peter up and immediately flashes him back to Jesus' words, before the rooster cry, crows twice, you will deny me three times. The look Jesus gives Peter leads him to tears. But it's my contention that this look is not one of condemnation, but of compassion. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. Sinclair Ferguson writes, that look would be Peter's salvation. It was the turning point in his life. Now, in the most painful and memorable of ways, Peter saw himself as he really was. Repented! And he was remade into a great apostle. And indeed, we do know that Peter would go on to become a great apostle. In Acts 2, we hear him preach powerfully. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he saw thousands respond. In Acts 4, we read of him boldly telling all the religious powers in Jerusalem. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and the elders, 
If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man was healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In Acts 5, we learn of his courage to continue speaking in the name of Christ no matter what the cost. We see in Peter's life transforming grace. We see a disciple who was in the process, who is in process, and growing up into maturity. We see in Peter one who never outgrows his need for Jesus. Despite all these amazing things that Peter does, we, we see him in Galatians participating in sins of nationalism and favoritism, and we see Paul rebuking him to his face, remember? The, the point here is that Peter never arrives and neither will you. You will never arrive. Not until kingdom come. And that's okay. Jesus loves imperfect disciples. It's okay to not be okay. But it's not okay to stay there. It's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay there. Jesus never forsakes Peter for his failures, nor will he forsake any who put their faith in him and continue to come to him, confessing and repenting of sin. This is why Luther says all of life is repentance, is because we never outgrow our need for it. Christian, never grow up. Never get so lost in pride that you forget humility. Never get so lost and proud that you stop confessing and repenting. Confess your sins to one another, brothers and sisters. Kill your sin by bringing it into the light. Repent. Do not let your pride prevent you from experiencing forgiveness. Do not let your pride prevent you from experiencing the grace of Christ Jesus, our Lord. It's one of my greatest prayers that we would cultivate a culture here of confession and repentance, that any existing religiosity or uh, fake veneer would be swept away forever, that we would be genuine friends. We should be able to let it be known to all that we are a people that need a Savior. Let it be known to everyone, Christian, that you need a Savior and his name is Jesus. I mean, it's stupid if you don't. The whole Christian life is, is about saying, I can't. I'm not perfect. I need Jesus. I'm an unfaithful disciple who needs the faithful Savior. Christians, stop protecting your pride. Start 
confessing your sin and running to Jesus regularly. Non-Christian, do not let your pride prevent you from knowing God. Turn from your sin and follow Jesus. Now, I would be remiss if I let you leave here without pointing out the powerful contrast Mark is making between Peter and Jesus. Quick sidebar, anytime you're reading the Bible, you haven't gone far enough in your reading until you've answered the question, how does this text or this character tell me about Jesus? The whole Bible is about Jesus, and so if we don't figure out how this text tells us about Jesus, we haven't understood the text Mark is making a powerful contrast. Peter's unfaithfulness is juxtaposed with Jesus' complete faithfulness. Peter is a proud and unfaithful disciple, while Jesus is a humble and faithful Savior. And keep Peter's disciples in, or <laughs> keep Peter's denials in your mind as we read about Jesus in verse 61, just before Mark introduces us to Peter's denials and, and gives us this featured contrast. Again, verse 61, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ? the son of the blessed. And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. Jesus denies himself and follows the will of the Father at the expense of himself. Peter denies Jesus to preserve himself. Jesus goes to the cross for Peter and for people like him. Jesus lives the life we should have lived. He dies the death we should have died, and he rises from the dead, proving his person and his power so that by faith in him we might raise like him and enjoy eternal life together with God. He, he takes sin's curse, the curse we deserved, so that we can have the blessing of obedience, the blessing that only he deserves. Jesus, the perfect person, the perfect disciple, substitutes himself for imperfect people so that those willing to admit their imperfection and their need of him can enjoy fellowship with him forever. Jesus dies that we might die to sin. He lives that we might live to righteousness. He, he didn't stay in the grave, nor does he leave, leave his people there. He makes us new, declares us righteous, and puts his Holy Spirit in us so that we might become and practice what he's declared us to be in truth. Friends, Jesus loves you as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. True, we are not perfect now but we have been declared righteous. And because of our love for Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we strive to become like him. We strive to become holy. Friends, Jesus loves imperfect disciples. So don't be discouraged. He's perfecting you right now through all of your sins and all of your circumstances. He's molding you into his image and he still loves you even when you fail like Peter. Our God makes beauty from ashes, life from death, saints from sinners. 
Church, never grow up. Continue to mature in Christ, yes, but never outgrow confessing and repenting of sin. Never outgrow running into the arms of Christ. Never get too cool to rejoice in the truth that Jesus loves me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together to rejoice in the truth of the gospel, to delight in your grace, the fact that you died for sinners like us, that you love us in the midst of our failures, that you're working in us to prepare us for eternity that one day indeed, when you return, we will be made perfect. We will reign with you, live with you, laugh with you. Enjoy all the riches of the cosmos with you. God, you are so good. Amen.